Hello, and welcome to the Mauerglass Podcast, where we look at the world through the lens of design. I'm Jill Mauer, and I'm here with Artemis today. has gone on in the past couple weeks in the area of design, it has been a little nuts. So first of all, let's talk about the biggest news. Uh, well, first of all, how do you like these new mics? Oh yeah, we now, so we're set up differently and I hope you can hear the difference. I don't know if you can, but we used to, Artemis and I would sit side by side and we shared a mic. And now we have these new mics, and he's calling them snowballs. <laughs> they say, I'm looking right at it, it says blue. But we each get, they look. it looks like a little white ball, even though it says blue. Well, this is all confusing as far <laughs> as design goes. Yes, it is the uh, <laughs> snowball ice. So it is the white round micro- condenser microphone made by the company Blue, who makes uh, pretty good microphones. Um, yeah, so the microphone we were using before, it was that H4N that we usually use for your YouTube videos. Um, and it works good for that because it's right in front of you. We can put it out of the way um, and it is a dynamic mic. So I have a little bit more control over your voice. Um, for podcasting though, since there's two of us, it makes more sense for both of us to have a microphone. And these are known as condenser mics, meaning that they have less range. So essentially what that means is as you talk, it takes every piece of your sound and it sort of squishes it like a sandwich and it makes it very easy to monitor and process. So it's supposed to be a a simpler microphone to use for everything. People use it for music, podcasting, pretty much anything. We'll see how it goes. It is, uh, it gives us a little more freedom in a sense because we can sit sort of where we want to sit. We we, we used Mm -hmm. to have to sit really right next to each other. And also it seems like, I don't know, when, whenever there's a podcast or YouTube, my voice is much higher than it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's totally the equipment. And I'm always talking to usually a man who has a very bass voice. And so I sound like a little chipmunk. <laughs> uh, yeah. well, we, we talked about that when you first did YouTube, how uh, getting equipment is, because I think you asked, you know, what's the best equipment for us to have? And my I've been trained to sort of use what I have and only upgrade when you absolutely need to and it makes sense because you can spend a fortune in any kind of media just constantly upgrading because it's new and flashy. So you sort of have to learn how to see new technology and be like, all right, is that... Is this a gimmick? Do I need this? So, but this made sense to finally upgrade. So these freaked me out though because uh, I remember you asked me if you could order them. Uh, You ordered them on Amazon. And that day, not overnight, nothing. That day they showed up. I was, what is this? Is this a conspiracy? The same day. (laughs) Apparently, Amazon really is over our old sound quality. Yeah, they're like, please, for the love of God. (laughs) Here you go. So what kind of crazy stuff are we talking about today, Jill? Well, it was really sad, very, very, very sad to see Jeffrey the giraffe packing up. You have no idea. It. I just, you know, I haven't been to a Toys R Us in a long time because my boys are older now, but even as they were starting to get older, it it was, things were going downhill sort of in a Toys R Us. They were becoming, there were fewer toys and more kind of computer games. It was just taking over the whole place. Now you might disagree on, on what, what, whether that was nice or not, but it is sad to see them go. It was, it it felt inevitable, though. They kept watering down and watering down the store. 
And they experienced it and change it all. I mean, I, I went to, uh, they had a resurgence for a while in the last couple of years because millennials are getting back into board games, apparently. Like, there's this huge trend of us going back to older games. And, you know, most of us are converting them to drinking games. But the thing is, is we're getting back into that. So they survived for a while by expanding their board game aisle. And it was a huge, it was one of the first aisles you could walk into in every store. That was That was a smart move. Other than that, though, other than adding that one aisle for video games, they didn't do anything to really change the experience. You know, we've talked about this before where even even when I was shopping for toys for my boys, a lot of times I'd go to the smaller local toy store because the guy behind the counter had played with any mm-hmm. everything, knew about everything, and was more excited about it. And if you were asking questions, would just tear open the box right there and you could start playing with it and he would You're saying you. it was like a, was it a Brilliant Sky, like that sort of a store? Where it was that were... kind of a store. There were a yeah. couple of them. One was kind of a science store. A science, one was focused on science-y types of, of toys and one was more just, you know, high quality toys. And um, and you're right, they totally have to, too. The uh, my. One of my neighbors, he worked at Brilliant Sky, and every weekend he would come home with like a big pile of games. And he'd be like, what are you doing? He's like, I have to play all these because I can't talk to the customers unless I know what I'm talking about. Because they'll come in not knowing what they want. You know, my kid's this intelligent. He likes puzzles. He likes this. Oh, I got the greatest game for you. I played it this last weekend. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's it's amazing to me how unfun a toy store was. And even though I'm sad to see it go. Why didn't they make that a fun place? You know, there were so many opportunities. You don't have to be that creative mm-hmm. to figure out how to make a toy store experiential. <laughs> and the experience was you got a cart, you walked around, mm-hmm. and you threw things in it. And, you know. Well, they're having that issue that everyone's having. I, I love when you read things like everyone remembers when the internet changed everything. The internet. They need. Let me be. Let me be absolute. Let me put on my Obama stance. Let me be clear. All right. The internet did not change anything. It is still changing. We still haven't seen the end of the effect of this. So Toys R Us closing is a part of a long list of things that the internet really changed. People are buying stuff online, and going to Toys R Us didn't become an experience that you would look forward to, um, right. other than trying out the toys and that that bringing in video games in that store. I would argue was one of the bigger mistakes they made. It it just didn't work. Yeah, I love that picture though. I mean, not love, but I hated that picture. I I did all this all this smack I'm talking about Toys R Us. I was a Toys R Us kid. It was sort of a weird culture thing in Texas growing up. Every kid was looking forward to the end of the week when their parents would take them to Toys R Us. They would have Toys R Us competitions that were you know because they were sponsored every school. So. Yeah, everyone be going for the coupon there. So it is sad to see. And he had his little baggage thing and he's uh-huh. standing in front of the empty aisles. Right, oh my God. right. It, the, the, the problem is, and I liked Toys R Us in the beginning too, the, I think what we're both feeling is we wanted them to survive, but we also understand they did nothing to deserve it. <laughs> and the opportunities were there. Mm-hmm. They were there. I mean, there is a way to make a toy store fun. Right. I, there's, you know, there has to be. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't manage to do it. And if you can't do that, then, yeah, then you you close 700 stores. And that's what happened. So the other side of that coin sort of is Amazon. Amazon had some big news. And Amazon is well known for kind of driving bookstores and Toys R Us, helping helping them to exit stage right. Mm -hmm. And um, what Amazon has decided, 
they have really been driving the uh, the U.S. Postal Service. And apparently, you know, they've been sending a lot of their stuff to the post office, and then the post office is taking it the last mile. That's what's been going on. And so postal workers were even delivering on Sundays, and they were, it was really the postal service's biggest customer was Amazon. And this past week, Amazon announced that they have purchased a fleet of trucks, and basically they're offering franchise opportunities. And I think it's $10,000. And for that amount of investment, you get four trucks and, you know, all your shirts, everything will be Amazon logoed, and you'll get a customer, which, you know, you get one, it'll be Amazon, and you can start delivering their packages. Oh, I see. So they're they're getting people to buy in to become drivers. Okay. Right. So, well, they're, they're buying, you can't buy in just to become a driver. You can buy in to become an outlet or, you know, you you get a territory, Mm -hmm. you get a little territory and you get to deliver all of the Amazon packages. Now they, they did say you can also deliver other things, but I don't think you can have Amazon on your truck when you do. So, Mm -hmm. so your, your company can have a fleet of Amazon trucks and then other trucks too, if you want to start a delivery company, but it's essentially a franchise. And I was talking to my dad about this and he said, why would Amazon do that? Why wouldn't they just, uh, you know, buy the trucks themselves and, and do all of this. And for me, the answer is infrastructure. You know, that takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of people. And I think this too will just be a blip on the, on the grand timeline that they will eventually come up with another solution whether it would be drones or there will be some other method of delivery. Um, and so that's what I would warn people about if they decide to do this. It, it's a great, it can be a great way to make money. It's an investment. It's pretty much a guaranteed return, but it is not long-term. So you personally, it needs to be part of your bigger plan. And there are a lot of things you could do. You'd learn how to run this type of company. You'd, you'd, there's a lot of education that you get when you buy into a franchise. But I wouldn't buy into this thinking this is what I'm going to do for the next yeah, 50 the, years. That's the unfortunate pendulum swing of like exponential technological advancement in society is that industry shelf life also shrinks. So yeah, we're already seeing that with you know Uber is the first couple of years people were, I mean, people loved driving for Uber. Like, I can set my own hours. Like I'm making a, a lot of money. Like I can do this for the rest of my life. And so you probably won't be. Right. That absolutely won't be. That's I've had more than one Uber driver say that to me. I want to be the best because I'm going to be doing this. Not that the- it's inherently a bad thing that it's going away. Just it's something you got to be. I I have to deal with that every day. You know, because like we were talking about these microphones. Like every single day, I have to understand that whatever I know how to use, uh, whether it's Adobe whether it's how to record a podcast, whether it's how to use this particular camera, I have to keep that very, I have to hold it like a bucket of water and just be ready to let it go the second some new piece of technology comes out. Um, And I can't get sad over it. I can't get frustrated by it. I just have to sort of go with the punches and keep adapting and keep getting, it's, it's not a game you can win. Technology is never a game you can win. Right. 10 years ago, nobody, you know, we wouldn't have thought that we would be sitting here and doing essentially radio, why would we be doing that when video took over? Um, you know, so things come and go. In right now, doing podcasting, we love doing it. Will we be doing it in ten years? 
we'll see if podcasting is still around, but what we're learning and the connections we're making doing this will apply to whatever that is the next step. That's yeah. the thing to really understand. And yeah. The only reason I know how to do this podcast right now is because, uh, at some point I was trained how to do a live recording. And at some point I had tried actually doing vocals. I've recorded our podcast before, so I know roughly what are the differences in our voices are. Hence why this meter over here I'm watching has different volumes set. Cause I know that. So even if this whole technology goes away, I can still pull that wisdom into something else. So the other thing that is impacting um, delivery of goods via the internet is this decision that was made where a judge said that a certain state, and I think it was South Dakota, can in fact require anybody shipping anything to South Dakota to have to collect South Dakota sales tax. And this changes everything. Um, when I was younger, you know, it was catalogs. When you ordered from a catalog, as long as that catalog was not in your state, then it was tax-free. That extended to the internet. Um, so if you order something, say from Saks or Sephora, if there's a Saks or Sephora in your state, you're going to pay the tax. But if there's not, then you're not. And so it can be a good way um, to sort of save money from the perspective of the person buying. But from the perspective of the person selling, mm -hmm. now this is going to be a... This that is sounds... I can't speak for these stores, but if it was me, that sort of sounds like a less of an incentive to even have a physical store. But, but now the whole game has changed because even if you have no stores, what this court case says is any state now can say, you're, if you sell in our state, you're required to collect taxes for our state. So what that means is if you have an internet company you're selling online, now you have to take, now there are a couple of states that don't don't have taxes, but say 46 do, you now have to know how to collect and report in those 46 states if you're going to sell to those 46 states. <laughs> oh my goodness. That changes everything. So that's a, that is a, an accounting. No, they just made Shopify's day a lot harder. <laughs> that, right. That's an accounting nightmare. So hopefully people like Shopify will do all that math and help you. I mean, you, you literally have to file tax reports in all those places. So it's unclear right now what's going to happen, whether some people will just say, okay, well, we're not selling in every state. That can't last because we know that buying on the internet is the way things are going. It's going to be interesting to see how this ends up happening. Um, I would imagine too, this is something interesting. Okay, here's a business idea if you're out there. If you're out there and you are on the border, like if you're in a state, say Tennessee, that no, Tennessee does have sales tax. Who doesn't have sales tax? If you're in Pennsylvania, well, on certain things. Anyway, if you're in a, in a state that doesn't have sales tax, Alaska. Crap, it won't work for Alaska. I could see where there would be little pop-up sort of mailboxes, etc., happen right on the edges of states that don't have sales tax so that you could just have everything shipped there <laughs> and then you can drive in and pick it all up. I don't know. In other news, the business of post office boxes surrounding the borders of all 50 states has spiked exponentially. <laughs> right. It'll be interesting to see how this progresses. Now, one of the things that they have said is that for companies of that have sales less than $100,000, they don't have to do that. So it's, you know, your little, whoever you're buying from on Etsy uh, is probably okay. If you're buying handcrafted items or little items from people who are small, you're probably 
they're probably okay. But the minute you cross that 100,000 line, now you're, you could be expected to collect tax and report in all those states, which, you know, is, <laughs> is going to be difficult. In other sad news, Coco passed away. The gorilla? The gorilla. Ew. Yeah, oh this is goodness. the gorilla who spoke uh, sign language, was really very pretty good in sign language. And on YouTube, you'll see Coco with all kinds of different people. Coco had big following. Robin Williams was a fan. Hmm. Oh, my God. This is, I completely missed this news. This is hor- This is terrible. <laughs> it's awful. I know. Coco lived a long life. I think... Uh, I think Coco was 46 years old. So we, is, did it die of old age, I'm guessing? I, I'm not sure, but it was, you know, yeah. probably. It was, it was age I don't know what the life expectancy of a gorilla, but I imagine that's up there. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I love that video when uh, Coco's with Robin Williams, and mm-hmm. Coco, first of all, recognized him. Right. And, that you know, she had such a fun time just goofing around with him. That was so... His oh. movies was one of her favorite uh-huh. movies. I don't, I don't remember which one. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that gorillas watched movies. Well, in the wild, they, they don't watch Okay, movies. yeah, okay. In the wild, they don't watch <laughs> I guess you could also argue in the wild, they don't do sign language either, so... What, what I meant is... <laughs> I, I tried this experiment with my cat uh, when I was growing up. I, w- I would show it YouTube videos, and I would say, can, can you tell that there's another cat there? They could always hear it, but they would never see the cat. But then there'd be videos of cats playing with an iPad where it was an app designed for them and a fish would be swimming around. And if they pawed it, the fish would move the other way and they would get excited. So Yeah, I'm not sure that that's really understanding that a video works. But um, I think dogs do. Dogs, yeah. dogs, they, they <laughs> Did watch. Did Coco have a freak out moment? It's like, God, how did you get out of that box? Right. <laughs> You're way bigger now. And how much of the plot did Coco understand? See, now I have all these follow-up questions. Right. What rating? If, does Coco have a top 10 Robin Williams movie list? What was the Coco's rating? Four thumbs up? Like- right, right. Well, Coco could sign. They, there might have been intricate discussions about this. What's I don't the know. sign for? Meh. <laughs> yeah, right. that was it. That oh, was it. Boy. <laughs> so um, here's something interesting that I found interesting. Procter & Gamble came out this, this past week and stated that they want women to direct 50% of their ads by 2023. Right now, women are only directing, they're directing fewer than 10%, less than 10% of their ads. Now, Procter & Gamble does not directly hire the directors. They hire companies to make their ads. But what they're telling these companies is we want 50% of them to be directed by females. And I think that that was an interesting move. I was frankly kind of surprised to learn that only less than 10% would be directed by women. There's, I don't know, I still... It's it's, it's about right. Um, then it gets even, it, at one time it got even worse in Hollywood too, just for theatrical releases. One thing that is happening though is and because of all of these movements that are happening and they are giving women directors more of a chance, more opportunity, like women are in a lot of ways dominating like uh wonder woman was directed by a, a female director and it's you know obviously one of the best reviewed movies of that year so it's slowly picking up but yeah it's there's always been a gender gap unfortunately yeah i knew that there were there was in feature films i remember even back in the day um big was a big movie with tom hanks and penny marshall directed that mm-hmm. and a lot of people felt that it should have received many more awards than it did and 
I remember there being a lot of talk that it was that it was directed by a female. Yeah, there's so much campaigning for those award shows, and I mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. It, in, a, in a vacuum, yeah, in a vacuum, what you'd like to say is you'd like it to be a system where regardless of gender, regardless of race, it's whoever's the most suited to direct this film. But in practice, what happens is there is a male slant. So it, it is good that, I, that they're making that sort of a mandate. I, I agree. I think that that is, that is a good move, and we'll see if other people follow suit. Um, sticking with video a little bit, Disney had to uh, Disney had to issue a warning, a medical warning about Incredibles two. Apparently, did pe- you see Incredibles two? I have not seen it, and I do want to see it. I just saw it yesterday, and I I, I see why. <laughs> yeah, apparently, people have been having seizures. Um, I'm not going to give away, this will be spoiler free, but essentially what it is in the movie is there is a character who hypnotizes people and the way that the person hypnotizes the person's name is screen slaver and the way that they do it is they they play this hypnotic scene on someone's tv or on their watch you know whatever tv screen is near them and it's this weird really contrasty flashy i i had to squint during it but which which i like i like that it was that you know because normally you have like the little swirl and you're like right that hypnotizes people right. this seemed like something that you know, in that Art Deco alternate universe they have going on there, that it might hypnotize somebody. It really could affect somebody. So, yeah, apparently people have had some seizures. They um, put a note right before the movie too. They've already amended the movie file. You know, because a lot of they don't have reels anymore. A lot right. of it's digital. So they put a slate before the movie saying some people have experienced seizures, and it's. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think you know I've shared that my I have one son who's autistic and. I, I'm not sure that I would want him to watch that. I know one of the reasons for autistic people, for example, that fluorescent lights bother them is that they can see the the pulse. Um, so I'd be a little nervous even about him that, watching Yeah, that it. pulsing is the mm-hmm. part that makes it so bad. You can see the pulsing no matter what. Like they've made it pulse, which is cool. But what I think will happen if I had to guess is I think by the time it gets to TV release, I think the production studio is going to, go back in and tone it down yes. and they're going to change it in a minute. It's, it's happened before where based on theatrical release, they make amendments. Right. Well, speaking of issuing warnings and apologies, uh, we need to issue an apology. Oh, do we? What did we, we do? We do. We um, pretty much to the entire country of Mexico. So we reported in the last podcast that so many people cheered uh, at, for a goal <laughs> when Mexico gold that... It, it was measured on the, the Richter scale. And it turns out they now think that it wasn't actually all of Mexico. It was the people in the building housing the Richter scale. <laughs> Which is just as interesting <laughs> if you think about this from a design perspective. That building has one purpose. It is to measure gigantic seismic events. <laughs> one of the first things they're going to design that building to do is say, all right, guys, what happens if we just jump up and down? What happens if Greg slips and falls? You know Greg, always slipping and falling during a cataclysmic event, messing up our readings. So they would have designed or, it to or be... just during lunch. <laughs> they would have designed this building to be unmovable by humans. The World Cup apparently created a scenario where they were partying so hard <laughs> that, they, <laughs> that they got a reading on their own scale. 
So that's to me just as, if not more interesting. And the, the world city. news reported it as Mexico, the entire country. Yeah, so just, just <laughs> add that to the long list of things we have to apologize to Mexico for. Right, right. This Our is bad. true. Our bad again. Again. <laughs> yeah. Right. You want to talk about IGTV? We can. I don't know much about it. So IGTV is now Instagram TV, basically, for people um, who don't know. And Instagram is coming out with this video option. They want to compete with YouTube. And whereas YouTube is, is horizontally, how do you, how do you say that? It's, it's, uh, the, yeah, the, it's, it's a horizontal. It's like a frame. landscape. So if you mm-hmm. picture landscape versus portrait, IGTV falls under the new category of vertical video, vertical video. So it's kind of the portrait version. So it is not the case for, for those of us who are recording YouTube videos, those don't all just go over to IGTV. So yeah, so it's Instagram's power play to take over YouTube. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I, I think that there will be a wave of people doing it. I think it'll be interesting. But, you know, Instagram was purchased by Facebook. Facebook has done things that have um, not been friendly to the people who use it. So I I personally don't like Instagram as much as I liked it before Facebook purchased it. And I don't think that adding this video is going to help that much more. I'm, I'm going to be a fan of YouTube. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, I look at it, of course, through uh, just the lens of this ongoing media evolution. Um, one of the many hats I wear in, in my house is I, I consider myself a media theorist. Um, so this is part of a timeline that we knew was coming. Um, and what's going to happen as a result of it is interesting. So for the last hundred or so years, let's let's talk about time before cell phones really came out, smartphones, phones that you could actually watch real video on. Up until that point, we as consumers have been used to going to a movie theater and seeing a super wide screen that's you know across, not vertical, right? Um, some would argue that that came in as a result of the way that we read books, that that was sort of the bias. But and at the same time, our TV was different. Exactly, it was a perfect and, square. Well. Later. Well, it later is a, a perfect square. Right. And then it started getting wider and wider to match theatrical release. So when you watch things from the early 2000s or late 90s on DVD and your new TV, it's still in a square. So that there's a lot of things that goes into It's not just a matter of cropping. Like we think of cropping as like just something easy. You just make it a square now. But there's a lot of in-production theory that goes into making film and TV shows. Where do you put the subject in a two-person interview if you know it's coming out on a square? Where do you keep the camera if there's an action about to come in from the ceiling? And I can tell you that back in the day when they would play a movie on TV, this is even before VCRs, mm-hmm. but if you were just watching a movie on TV, there would be things that you would miss. They couldn't get it all in. They sort of had to make a decision about what part of it you were going yep. to see. My favorite example of how that can affect the bias of the actual story and mess up the original intention is that movie Catch Me If You Can with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio about the uh, famous con man who basically worked his way up to become a real pilot and he stole millions, etc. and ended up working for the FBI. Now, the scene that this happens is a scene that happens during Christmas where Tom Hanks is sitting at his desk. Uh, it's Christmas time. He's not at home with his family. He's at work uh, and he's eating Chinese food. And the scene on TV when it's a square, all you see is him sitting there at the desk eating the Chinese food. What you miss if you don't see it in movie theaters or see it on a wider screen is that just behind him or just to the just to the 
like sitting right next to him on the desk are about, you know, there's like a dozen empty boxes of the same Chinese food he's eating. And by cropping that, you get rid of one of the key points of that shot, which is to communicate without saying it that he's done this, but, you know, he's been here several days. He frequently stays in the office versus family. And it implies that there's maybe a problem with the family. All of that just by cropping that shot. So, so, but fast forward to the, the vertical video situation. When cell phones came in, you had apps that allowed you to take video footage. And I remember I was telling you in the early days, what frustrates me is when people have these phones and they take video and they don't just turn it to the side, because if you just turn your camera to the side, you can use the footage on YouTube, et cetera, of filmmaking. But there's a whole generation now of kids who grew up with Snapchat. They grew up watching videos on the phone. So their bias of everything has to be horizontal is less so. They're used to vertical video. They've actually trained themselves without even thinking about it, how to frame someone about to do something funny on a skateboard with a vertical video. Like, where do I lead? How do I move the camera? So IGTV is that huge hurdle now. Now we have a platform where people are going to have to learn how to do those compositions and actually think about it. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a textbook in the works right now about how to frame an entire movie based on vertical video biases. So it's interesting to finally see a platform that we've been theorizing would come eventually, and now this is one of the first that's actually going to do it. Well, now, correct me if I'm wrong, I would think that a movie, to, to actually go to a theater and watch a movie vertical would be difficult now because, you know, that's a big job. You've got to turn all those big screens, right, right. to do that. But it strikes me that it would not be that hard for YouTube just to add a vertical video category. I mean, that's kind of artificial. Our screens, most of our computer screens mm -hmm. are horizontal but you know if you shot vertical video already you can see it on youtube it's not like you can't it's yeah. not great but it's not like and they're starting can't. to did you see that they have that new expand button where instead of just expanding it it will it will expand it to the vertical video of your phone it, it's weird it's it doesn't change the aspect ratio of the video but it fills it so that it's not like the video's there and you have space below it it'll fill the whole screen if you want it to yeah so uh, as far as the horizontal versus vertical debate i i'm not I'm not clear that I have an opinion on that. I do think that Instagram, especially purchased by Facebook, is going to try to be everything for all people, um, like it tried to be on Facebook, and it didn't succeed there, and I don't think it will succeed on Instagram. And I, I think that for two reasons. One is, generally, companies are better when they do focus, when they, they just focus on something and do it really well. I think, in general, a company is more likely to be successful that way. And then thing two is I just don't think that Facebook um, is the right company to ever try to be everything for everybody because, you know, it's pretty clear that they're just, they end up being selfish. And I mean, Facebook is very different than it was when we first started using it. Now, um, we used to be able to see the whole screen and now there's just this one little sliver on the screen that we can even see and it's advertising and other than that. And of course... They've been taking our data and selling our data. Um, but I just, I think it's almost impossible for any company to try to be everything for all people. And I just don't see it succeeding. And of course, we were talking about this. Like, I, I love watching new platforms like this come out because you, you see the same trajectory every time. YouTube, Instagram. A platform comes out that promises something nothing else does. Um, again, you can upload vertical video to YouTube. What this is really selling is it's another channel linked to your official Instagram page, which for a lot of people is their whole company. Mm -hmm. So you have the early days where it's, oh, wow, look at this amazing platform. This is another way that I can get my name out there and become big. That's the first part. Part two is 
what really ends up happening is it becomes a channel for people who are already established. This is another way for your favorite band to get content to you that you already are expecting. This is another way for this uh, celebrity to get this message out. And then it goes right back to the way that other mediums are, where it's the very, very top content creators are the ones that are getting pushed the absolute most internally by the company, and the rest of us are playing catch-up. And it happens right. every single time, and it's it's interesting to see. Yeah, and, and not only that, but this Instagram TV is not particularly um, inventive because it they basically, everything is just sort of me too. The Snapchat... Um, I mean, you know, the Insta story was a me too to Snapchat. It was a way to cut out Snapchat. <laughs> and now this new thing is just a me too to YouTube. It's not to me particularly creative other than you could argue it's oh, vertical yeah. format. You don't, you don't watch Rick and Morty, do you? No. There's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very funny cartoon show that has a really huge cult following right now, but um, they have a funny, there's a funny meme that came out of it. So basically the premise of this one episode is that there's this cool box that if you hit it, it launches a, a genie almost, sort of an interdimensional genie called a Meeseeks. And he's a super happy guy, Mr. Meeseeks, look at me, I'll help you do whatever you need. And he'll do one task for you. The problem is, is that he wants to do it because only when he completes your task does he get to explode and sort of die. So it's this really dark humor of he's like, yeah, I'll help you do the dishes, whatever it takes. So in this joke, what ended up happening is Jerry, the main character, is so bad at golf that one Meeseeks can't help him. So he sum the Meeseeks summons another Meeseeks. Like, hey, can you help me help him so we can get out of here? Then that one calls another one. And then later in the episode, there's like 30 of them in a room. And they're like, why did you get me into this? Because he wrote me into this. So anyway, long story short, that became a meme recently where people are putting different faces on the Meeseeks. So they did one for uh, this Battle Royale thing where Fortnite was like, you know, why am I doing Battle Royale? It's because that game wrote me into this. Because that game wrote me into this. So that'll be the thing with uh, you're talking about where it's just like, that might actually be another good one where it's like, well, why are we doing vertical video? That's because Instagram wrote me into this. It's because YouTube wrote me into this. (laughs) All right. So anyway, speaking of memes, uh, it's weird talking about memes and like a traditional recording because it always happens on the internet at 2 a.m. when I'm bored. But um, speaking of memes, I... One interesting, back to sort of another media theory of mine, I think memes in the internet has made everyone funnier in general. Really quick, really witty. I think in general it makes everyone funnier because everyone can try their hand at it. Um, So, for example, this past week I was at one of my favorite places to go on Sunday called Waffle House. Um, Food you could have basically made at home, but you were too lazy, so you went out and got it. So while we were in line waiting to pay for it, um, this uh, woman in front of us, uh, the six people that are waiting to pay, decided to make things complicated for the cashier. She said pretty much, and I quote, I want you to take $7 from this 20 I'm about to hand you, uh, put that $7 towards the bill, and my friend here is going to pay the rest with his debit card, right? That's what she should have said. It, already complicated, but that's how she should have said it. She said it in the worst possible way. She said, take this, take seven out of it, put the rest with the bill. He's going to take whatever's left. Like he said it in this way that confused this poor woman at the cash register. And it honestly held the line up for seven minutes of them trying to undo the thing. And then she got frustrated (laughs) because why don't you understand what I'm saying? Because you're saying it horribly wrong. So anyway, she leaves. They finally get it sorted out. And all seven people behind the second this woman leaves start roasting her. They're like, can you guys believe that? That was the most complicated way you could have possibly said it. So then we all started whispering amongst ourselves. I looked over at my room and I was like, hey man, you know what I'm going to do? I was like, all right, look, when I get up to this cashier, I'm going to 
I'm going to act like I'm doing something complicated too. I'm going to say something about it. I would like to use three bitcoins. I want to use <laughs> some monopoly dollars. I've got some. Uh, I've, I've got this crazy bell that, a old, that an old monk gave me on the road to <laughs> enlightenment. You know, it's just all kinds of crazy stuff. And we're all whispering to each other. So we all get ready. We're all standing up. And then the first guy who's ahead of all of us goes up there. He's like, uh... Yeah, so I'd like to pay with my firstborn child. Uh, he, he goes off on this tangent, and at the same time, all of us just go, "Dang it! He paid us to it." No. <laughs> so, wait, wait, wait! I got one. I got one. I, I got one. one. No, 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 no. Mine's funnier. Mine's funnier. Listen to this. And so this poor cashier that had to sit there for seven minutes and deal with us idiots trying to beat each other's real-world memes at <laughs> random stand-up. I'm telling you. Oh my goodness. Yeah, there, there was a there was a killer set, a killer comedy set. Line up at Waffle House last Sunday. It was great. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry I missed that. Yeah, I'm telling yeah, people are getting funnier. I, I'm convinced of it. Well, you know what I think? Mm. If you don't have video, it didn't happen. Oh boy. Yeah, okay. So usually when you see a video from Waffle House, it's not good. <laughs> I saw an interesting have you have you heard of this new restaurant in Boston called Spice? It's S P Y C E. No. It's interesting. Now, I have a son in chef school, and I love to cook, and I always thought, well, this will be a great thing for my son to be. Certainly, this will never be replaced by robots, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it is. This Spice restaurant, the entire thing, all of the chefs are robots. Mm -hmm. It is, it's fascinating to me. So basically, it's a walk-style restaurant, walk, W-O-K, meaning um, you know, you can order what you want and, and they'll mix it. So it's rice, vegetables, some meat and sauce. And these robots actually measure the food. You, you order on a little iPad. You can say that, you know, hold this or I want extra this or whatever. And the robot puts the food in the wok. The wok sort of spins and cooks it and it actually serves it to you. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I need that in my house. <laughs> that, <laughs> that sounds awesome. That would be kind of awesome, wouldn't it? Especially if it would chop everything. I don't know if the robots are doing yeah. the chopping. There's probably, I'm, I'm sure there are people doing something behind the scenes. That's so exciting. One of the live action Casper movies that I watched growing up, uh, there was a scene where it turns out in this version, Casper's father was an inventor in the early 1800s. And one of the things he invented was like the, the breakfast machine. And the thing like would roll an egg out of the giant crate, drop it, split it, fry it. You know, it was completely automatic. And I was just right. like, I want that. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it really it really does seem pretty cool. And I was surprised that it's they're, the first sort of robotic kitchen we're getting is about doing healthy food. I mean, I can really easily see a fast food restaurant having just a whole robotic system. In fact, a sort of a conveyor belt robotic system. But it's very interesting to me that it's actually fresh, healthy food that they're doing with robots. Yeah, I've seen those Japanese vending machines that are, you know, they're pretty cool. They'll, they'll have like a whole, it'll make a whole pizza in like eight minutes. You know, you customize what you want or they'll have one that... I mean, of course, they have the craziest vending machines over there. They have ones that will give you, like, lobsters and pizzas and whole bicycles. Like, they're, they're sort of crazy. But I have seen the one. Oh, I've also seen the one that will make French fries. But a whole restaurant, that's awesome. Yeah. So what do they do? They just go up and, I guess, pick what they want. And then it 
just automatically makes all of it? Is there any human component to it? Well, the, the, um, when you look at the video, there is a video online, you can see that part of the, part of the machine, it sort of goes back behind a wall that you don't exactly see. So something is going on back there. I don't know exactly what I, I don't think the food is all being sliced and cut up by robots. I think that there's a human element so it'll, but it'll be transformative training. So instead of training how to actually cook, you'll be training on how to make sure that it's loaded with all of the ingredients you need and stuff like that. Right. And of course, there's a chef who has created the different recipes and, and created the system. Um, but it does seem, you know, like once you do that, a lot of cooking is, is repetitive. Now, what I will say is having cooked a lot that... Um, it's not always you need to cook something for the exact number of minutes because if you're cooking with fruit, it may have more juice, less juice. You may need to add, you know, there's always subtleties and you're always kind of adjusting things. So it'll be interesting to see how well it actually does. Just the ripeness of a fruit or vegetable can change how long you need to cook it and whether to add sugar or not and mm -hmm. all of that. But I'm sure that whatever recipes were chosen were chosen in a way that it's pretty systematic. And who knows, it may be that these things are able to measure the moisture. And I have no idea, but I do think it's an exciting start. I would love to, to try it if I'm in Boston. And I would especially love a tour of the back. I mean, I just think that it's a... And again, I want it in my house. So that would be great. I don't, I that would be great. don't have to leave. Yeah, I need either that or a mommy. Oh, man. <laughs> Moms, the original robots. Right. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Mourglass Podcast. We hope, we, we hope you can hear us with these new microphones. We're, we're still working this out. That would be great. If you could hear us, that would be helpful. If you like this podcast, please give us a good rating on iTunes and tell your friends. We would like to meet them all. 